Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tim Phillips, president of Americans for Prosperity. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special guest, a key leader in Congress joining us. And boy, what a crucial time for our country. The president is out on a, on a victory lap, I guess you would say, for a $1.9 trillion boondoggle that has really nothing to do with this pandemic. It's sadly an ideological wish list for the left. Uh, there's more policy uh, battles ahead, hopefully some better results. Uh, but to introduce our guest is our Indiana State Americans for Prosperity Director, Michael Chartier. Michael, thanks for joining us and take it away. Thanks, Tim. And, and thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I've got a, the distinct honor of introducing uh, Congressman Jim Banks. Uh, Congressman Banks was elected in 2016 and represents the third congressional district of Indiana. Uh, before that, and he currently serves as the uh, chair of the Republican Study Committee. Uh, before that, he was in the Indiana State Senate um, and, and represented um, Northeast Indiana. And again, that's where the third district is. And he's currently serving as a uh, U.S. Naval Reserve Supply Officer. So he uh, deployed to Afghanistan uh, while serving in the Indiana Senate, which was sort of a unique, uh, unique uh, thing to have happen in this state. So, um, Congressman Banks, you know, with with without much more ado, I'd like to ask you the first question about the one point nine trillion dollar COVID relief package. I know it was passed, uh, you know, through a budget reconciliation, uh, pork, you know, pork spending uh, galore. Would you just sort of highlight what you think in, in, in that package, what that's going to do for the country and, and you know, what sort of the problems that that this will create for for us going forward? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tim. Thank, thanks to everyone in Americans for Prosperity for what you do, what you stand for, and uh, for having me today. Um, you know, it's been, it's a week old, but the more we learn about what was in, what was stuffed in the $1.9 trillion spending deal, the more troubling we find it. Um, everyone's heard the, the, the top lines on this before, but only 1% of the $1.9 trillion goes towards vaccinations. About 5% actually goes toward addressing the public health emergency of the pandemic. So hopefully that leaves everyone on the call scratching your head and wondering what the heck is the rest of it? Almost $2 trillion we're adding to, to our national debt, $2 trillion more on $4, four trillion roughly that we already uh, passed uh, out of Congress to address the pandemic. Uh, so now we're over $5.5 trillion we passed out of Congress. By the way, $1 trillion of what was passed previously is still sitting unspent in Washington, D.C. appropriated, but not used um, yet by the federal government to combat um, the, the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. So we just added another $1.9 trillion. So what, where, where does it go? I mean, much of it goes to bail out blue states. I think we talked about this the last time we did the AFP uh, live town hall with you. Uh, states like Illinois, who had budget deficits uh, prior to the pandemic for decades or longer, are now getting bailed out by taxpayers from states like Indiana who have been fiscally responsible for years passing balanced budgets at their state level. So this is a raw deal for American taxpayers. It's a raw deal for future generations who are going to have to pay for it. And uh, that, that's why I voted against it. It's also important to know that every single Republican in Congress in the House and the Senate voted against this $1.9 trillion deal. It's the first partisan a spending deal related to the pandemic that's passed out of Congress at a time when public health experts like there, there's a, one a study coming out of John Hopkins University that says we're going to have herd immunity 
uh, in April. Other experts are saying by the summer, we're gonna have herd immunity. So why in the world are Democrats pushing through a $1.9 trillion spending deal when the light is at the end of the tunnel that we're, we're about out of this, yet we're spending $1.9 trillion more on top of what we've already spent. And I think Politico, those of you who read Politico know it's not a center-right uh, media publication. Um, quite, quite the opposite. They, their, their morning email, Politico Playbook, the headline uh, last week summed it up quite well, Michael, to answer your question in a long way. Uh, the, the opening line of the Politico Playbook last week said, this is the largest expansion of the welfare state since LBJ was president and we ushered in the great society. That's what this is. That's what this deal was about. It was never about helping people who needed it most during a pandemic and passing a bipartisan uh, unifying bill out of Congress. It was about expanding the welfare state, the end goal of the socialist left-wing um, uh, uh, Democrat party that, that sits in charge in Washington, D.C. today. So that's a sad reality of, of where we are at the moment. As you said, hopefully some of the policy battles down the road will look differently than this. Um, and I'm optimistic that they will as the Democrat uh, Party, the, the progressive uh, socialist wing of the Democrat Party uh, beats uh, up, up on the establishment wing of the Democrat Party with their five-seat uh, majority in the House. Hopefully we'll have a little more luck, a little bit better luck moving, moving forward with some of the policy fights that we find ahead of us. You know, Congressman Banks, you do make a great point. And I, I, we commend for the Republican caucus in the House and the Senate voting in a united fashion against this, this horrific spending uh, bill. Good for them. And it's a good start to 2021 for the Republican caucus in the House and the Senate. Uh, I, perhaps this is not a shocker to uh, folks who are, are watching closely, but already with this uh, victory lap just starting, uh, political victory lap from the president just starting, word is coming out that they're already considering another multi-trillion dollar spending bill. They're calling it an infrastructure bill this time. And they're now calling for tax increases. It would be the first tax increases since the Clinton era in a significant way at the federal level, as, as would be our understanding. Uh, what a terrible idea to, to jack back up the corporate rate, which the, the tax cuts that uh, Republicans and President, then President Trump were able to get through in the tax reform in 2017 helped ignite this economy, make American business and companies so much more competitive vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Uh, it helped unemployment drop to records uh, levels we had not seen in the modern era. It's in, an incredible success story. Uh, Congressman, give us some insight on what you know so far on this emerging second, another big spending bill, and this time tax increases. And, and do you think some of, hopefully our friends on the Democrat side will, will perhaps have a pause and join in, in, in hopefully opposing this, uh, this spending and taxation? Well, Tim, Democrats love to spend money. So, and I, I understand the indictment of the Republican Party that, you know, I, I often hear the refrain, well, now that there's a Democrat in the White House, Republicans care about spending again, which is, um, which is a little bit uh, fair, but overall the, the indictment is unfair when you recognize that over the last four years, the four years that Donald Trump was in office, every spending bill that passed out of Congress, Democrats demanded twice as much as where we, the negotiations arrived 
at the end of the day. And because of the nature of requiring 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything, there had to be a negotiation at times with Democrats to pass uh, any, any spending deal to keep the government uh, funded. I, by the way, I voted against almost all of them, but uh, they're, they're, the, the, putting the blame on Donald Trump's shoulders for the rise in the national debt uh, doesn't recognize that Democrats were demanding almost twice as much in every single spending deal as what Republicans were asking for, and the, the negotiations always went upward, not downward. Um, that, that being said, when it comes to this in, this infrastructure deal, and it's funny that they're going to call it that, but this in, the infrastructure deal will, I believe, will be a, the the first real cracking point between the progressive left and the Democrats' uh, establishment wing of the party. So the AOCs versus the Nancy Pelosi's and Steny Hoyer's. By the way, when when Nancy Pelosi is a moderate. And the Democrat Party. This, this <laughs> I was, I was Democrat just thinking Party. that, Congressman. I, I was just thinking that. <laughs> but but this infrastructure deal. What? Uh, here's my prediction. What will happen is the progressive left will pull the. It won't just be a massive. I mean, we're talking 1.9 trillion dollars that we spent last week. I mean, I've seen some estimates that the infrastructure deal could be twice that uh, when it comes down to the bottom line. So what you're going to find happen is the the radical. A socialist progressive wing of the Democrat Party is going to try to make this is going to be their Green New Deal moment because they see infrastructure as an opportunity to to uh, push for their radical extremist environmentalist um, uh, views to push them forward with, through Green New Deal type programs. And uh, let me tell you, Pete Buttigieg, who I know him a little bit, he's the sec new Secretary of Transportation, who's going to be sort of in the driver's seat from the administration when it comes to the to the uh, the uh, infrastructure deal, he's he's not a moderate Democrat either. I mean, he he he's endorsed um, Green New Deal like provisions when he was running for president, and uh, he thought Joe Biden was too moderate when they were running against each other for president. So, watch this be a major uh, uh, crack uh, in the Democrat Party when you have the the radical progressive socialist wing fighting with the establishment wing over what the infrastructure deal might look like, and that's where you'll see. I think, and I hope, the Joe Mansions and the Senate rise up and say, "I I can't go along with a four trillion, five trillion dollar so-called infrastructure deal that require that that includes many radical environmental measures that will put coal mines in West Virginia out of business and and put uh, close close factories and infringe upon agriculture and farmers in his state." I think you're going to have a real awakening moment for some of the Democrats who realize that. This is bad politics for some of them in states that require them to have a put on a, a moderate image at home and then come to Washington and be forced for forced to vote for some of these radical measures that the progressive socialist wing of the, their party is pushing for. Congressman, you're the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Would you tell uh, the Hoosiers uh, that are listening sort of like what that is and what that means and like and what what you guys do and, and how that impacts both uh, the state of Indiana and the country at large? Yeah, that, thanks, Michael, for asking about Republican Study Committee. I'm very proud to be the chairman of, of this group that's been around for about 47 years. I created in the 70s as the conservative caucus Um in the uh, in the House, mirroring uh, back then, the Democrats had something called the Democrat Study Committee, which was their liberal caucus on their side. So that, that's where the name came from. A lot of people scratch their head and wonder what does the Republican Study Committee mean? Well, it's a term that dates back to a time when the Democrats had their study committee, and Republicans had their study committee. We're the largest conservative caucus on Capitol Hill. In fact, the Republican Study Committee is the largest caucus on Capitol Hill. We have 151 
members of the Republican House Conference who are a part of RSC. Um, we, we take positions and, uh, on, on different issues to try to plant the flag, the conservative flag for our, for our Republican conference to know what the conservative position is. These days when we're in the minority, it's, easy, it's easier uh, to plant the flag because the Democrats are so far to the radical left, it's easy to be the, uh, the North star on the conservative side. But, but at times we find ourselves at odds with, with some of the more moderate members in our Republican party. And, and uh, it's our job to be the conscience of, of, the, of, the, of Republicans on the Hill to remind our colleagues what the conservative principles are. So when it comes to our agenda and the platform though, we find ourselves in a unique moment, I believe, on the Republican side, on the conservative side in this post-Trump era. I mean, there, there are some who want to tug the Republican party back uh, to the agenda of the, you know, sort of the, the pre-Trump era. There's some who want to erase Donald Trump altogether from the Republican Party. We, we largely believe that Donald Trump did something that is very significant for the Republican Party. That's that he made the Republican Party the party of the working class again for the first time since Ronald Reagan. And he did it with an agenda that I, I believe marries the, the traditional conservative values of Ronald Reagan and combines them with some of the more uh, some of the new, some people will call them uh, populist ideas. I don't like to use that word, but a populist, uh, a, a, a populist agenda, I suppose, if you will, um, on, on other issues, creating a new conservative mo moment uh, for, the, for uh, our side. And the Republican Study Committee is sort of, we're, we're sort of the, um, the uh, heart and soul of where, where the party is going, um, not just on Capitol Hill, but nationwide and trying to articulate what that means. So we've developed a, what we believe is a consensus unifying agenda for conservatives that again, goes back to the root of who we are as, as Republicans and conservatives, fiscal responsibility, returning the Republican party to the mantle of being the, the party of fiscal responsibility. Uh, we believe in a strong national defense and, uh, the, the Reagan era mantra of peace through strength means that a strong national defense means that we're less likely to go to war. And our, a strong military is the greatest deterrent. Uh, we don't believe in forever wars, but we believe that a strong national defense is the greatest deterrent uh, to going to war. And we're the pro-family and pro-life party. I mean, those are, these are all positions that Republicans have always stood for. But I think Donald Trump taught us uh, a lot about how to attract working class voters who aren't traditional Republicans into our coalition, a coalition that we need to win back the majority in 2022. And I believe that we need to win back the White House in 2024. And that's a focus on, uh, on free speech censorship and protecting free speech, especially when it comes to big tech uh, companies who want to take away the free speech rights of, of the American people in the public square, which is now online. Um, we believe uh, strongly in, uh, in the principles of restoring uh, election uh, security and integrity. I know it's a topic that you want to talk about with HR1. Um, uh, we, we also believe that, um, you know, you know, that, we, that we should add uh, other issues and items uh, uh, to our agenda of strong, uh, strong security at the border and strong policies on, uh, that put American workers' interests first over the interests of foreign workers. These are all issues that we've wrapped into an agenda that unifies um, Republicans in our party and, and makes us a party that I believe can win elections in the future. We, we meet on a weekly basis, by the way, we have lunch meetings on Wednesdays and we have outside speakers come and talk about 
different issues. And we have a dialogue among our, our members ourselves, which is a rare um, uh, circumstance in, in uh, DC these days where members get together and actually talk about the issues of the day. And I think that that's what our members are hungry for is the dialogue, the back and forth between each other, different points of view. And uh, that healthy dialogue, I think, is what makes Republican Study Committee the powerful organization and, and institution that it has been and, all, and, and will continue to be on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I, I agree on the Republican Study Committee being a, a forum where, where members of Congress and guests, I've been to as a guest of the Republican Study Committee a, a number of times over the years. And uh, I can tell you some of the best you know, genuine uh, debates in a, in a good sense of that word, where you're actually trying to, to, to find you know, a way forward for uh, conservatism and, and the values of limited government and freedom that are at the heart of, uh, of that in, in our estimation. It is, it's a place where that happens. And uh, I've always enjoyed being a part of, of those discussions at the Republican Study Committee. And I agree with you. I, I think these next few years and frankly, even months are an important time for the Republican Party. They've got to find their way forward uh, and, and look at, you know, are they going to continue to be the party of limited government and freedom uh, and, and not uh, and hopefully resist the urge uh, to to use government to pick winners and losers. Sometimes we uh, conservatives uh, will say, well, if it's if it's the good guys, we, we want government. To, but really, we want we want a limited government and freedom. I think that's what the founders had in mind. Uh, OK, you mentioned um, H.R. 1. Uh, it was uh, the first legislation moved in the House. Um, I think every Republican also voted in the caucus against it. It's literally uh, nothing less than a federalization of elections. It, 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 would, it would simply wipe out in any meaningful sense the ability of states to, to run their own elections. And it would therefore trample on the idea of federalism. It has, you mentioned free speech as well, Congressman. It has enormous uh, negative implications for free speech. Uh, certainly for those who, who wish to, to have anonymous free speech, which those on the left and the right uh, enjoy uh, under the First Amendment. Can you talk a little bit about that and the dangers of this H.R. 1 as it moves over to the Senate? Yeah, Tim, I've heard some people who have been around uh, Capitol Hill for a lot longer than I have say this is the most dangerous bill they've ever seen work its way through uh, Congress. And what's important to note about H.R. 1 is that um, first of all, HR1 is a symbolic designation. It means that it's the Democrats' very top priority. It's the, it's the number one bill on their list of priorities. That's why they symbolically give it the number one HR, as in HR1. Well, it was also HR1 two years ago. A lot, a lot of people don't know that, but two years ago, HR1 was almost exactly word for word the same bill. And it pushes every state to move in the direction of, as you said, nationalizing elections and the, with the giving the federal government more control of how elections are conducted. And with that, forcing states to move to all mail-in ballot processes like what we saw occur in this last election in a dangerous way uh, in many states throughout the country. So with that, you have ba ballot harvesting occurring. A lot of people, you know, I, when I try to expand, explain what, what it means to ballot harvest, it means that activists on either side, but the Democrats and the left-wing activists are the ones who have perfected this, 
they'll go out and if you mail ballots to everybody, unsolicited, mail them to everybody's mailboxes, activists will go out and collect those ballots. Or they'll set up uh, ballot boxes in uh, areas that prefer, um, that have more Democrats or, you know, 90% Democrats live in, in this precinct that will set up a ballot box in the city park and collect ball ballots uh, ballots there. So it opens the door to um, to, to rigging uh, the election in a way that we've never seen before. By HR one would would do that, and that's why that's why it's dangerous. It gives one party a distinct advantage over the other party on election day, and, and that that in and of itself is a reason to oppose HR one uh, because it because it does that. But if you didn't think that was crazy enough, I mean, you go through the list, Tim, that you just mentioned, I mean, the, the six to one uh, 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 match and uh, for, for public financing of campaigns, meaning that you and I are conservatives, but we're funding the campaign of Bernie Sanders for president every four years. I mean, that, that's not just immoral, it's, it's, um, it, it's a, it is a free speech issue it's a first amendment issue that we should be aware of as well and then then you go on and realize that they also stuffed dc statehood into this bill what does dc statehood have to do with with um with with election election reforms that democrats are pushing for the only thing that it has to do with it is it gives democrats two more democrat senators in the united states senate even though it's blatantly unconstitutional the constitution is very clear that uh, America, that the United States will set up, set aside a district that's not a state that will be the, the, the capital city of America. I mean, it's blatantly unconstitutional, yet they're still, they've still stuffed it into this bill to grant themselves two more Democrat senators. I mean, it's almost, it, they're, they're so transparent about this that it should make you wonder why, I mean, do, do they really think they're going to get away with it? Well, um, they won't get away with it if they keep the filibuster in place in the Senate. But all of a sudden, if you, I don't know if any of you track on a daily basis the confusing um, and contradictory answers that Joe Manchin is giving about whether or not he's for or against keeping the, the uh, filibuster, it's because the, the radicals in his party are beating up on him every day uh, to get rid of the filibuster and, and push HR1 through because this is what they most desperately want and need to occur, occur to secure Permanent power. Why do they want permanent power? Because they want to they want they want to capture permanent power, uh, so that they can transform America in radical uh, ways to fit their their left wing uh, agenda. So HR one is their biggest tool to do it. They're going to do. They're two years ago when they passed this out of the House, we didn't lose a lot of sleep about it because the Senate was controlled by Republicans and we had a Republican president. Today we should lose sleep about it. Um, because this is the most radical thing they could do, and they're hell bent on doing it, and we got to push back on it every step of the way. Yeah, you know, I, I think about your your comments on the filibuster, and you're so right. I, I we're deeply concerned. You know, you think about uh, American uh, representative democracy. You know, we're a republic, uh, and one of the uh, keystones of that are protecting the rights of minorities, uh, and in this case, the filibuster in the Senate. It serves as a check on just you know rank, uh, you know rule that that runs roughshod in a more partisan way, uh, and we strongly agree with you on the filibuster, uh, and we would say that regardless of the party in power, Congressman, we would we we would say it's the right thing when Democrats uh, are in the minority, and it's the right thing when Republicans are in the majority, or minority. Excuse me. The, the filibuster does serve to bring comedy and. 
and, a, and at least an opportunity uh, for our nation to have to come together and reach a broader consensus before undertaking anything uh, massively, in this case, radical, certainly, like HR1. It is. It, I think about Indiana, your home state, your, Michael, your home state as well, or Florida, states that no one is alleging has, has issues. All the votes are counted properly. The winners are easily figured out that night rather than weeks later, like in places like New York and California. And it would simply wipe out your ability in Indiana to, to oversee your elections, which you do well and with integrity. It, it's a frightening thing. So uh, yeah, thank let, let, you me for add, let me add one uh, quick uh, point to that. A, a recent poll just came out a few weeks ago. I think, I think it was Pew. Uh, research that, that put out this poll, that today 48% of the American people don't trust our elections. I mean, we, we're, at a, we're at a crisis point where we have a moral responsibility, I, I believe, as, uh, as elected officials at all levels of government to do something about restoring trust in our elections, the underpinning of our democratic process. So when 48% of the American people don't, don't trust our elections, it, dis it disintegrates the public trust in the institutions of our government in a way that I don't, I don't think we've seen in my lifetime. And it's not going to get better when we pass bills like HR1. I mean, HR1 does the opposite of restoring trust in our elections process. It's not, this is not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about protecting our institutions and our democratic process. And, and that's why I'm, I'm so glad that Americans for Prosperity and other groups are, are focused on this charge, on this issue, because we, we really do have a moral duty to address it. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I'll take the uh, the last question here, if you don't mind, uh, uh, Congressman. Uh, so uh, you were you were in the state Senate um, uh, before before moving on to Congress, and you took some tough votes to balance the budget. Um, and now you were bailing out states that didn't do that. Would you tell a little bit about the Indiana story and what you would what lessons you think uh, the Hoosier state should bring to to Washington D.C.? Yeah, well, I mean, Michael, we've had incredible leadership in Indiana that took us, I mean, when I first got involved in politics, we had a Democrat governor, we had Evan Bayh was, was governor, and then Frank O'Bannon, his lieutenant governor, became governor. And they ran up a budget deficit in our state. And that ushered in Mitch Daniels, who became the first Republican governor in our state after a long time. And he was, um, you know, he was, he was the, they called him the, the, the knife when he was the OMB director for George W. Bush, because he understood that I mean, his, his maxim was always that if you could find it in the phone book, the government shouldn't be paying for it. And uh, I, I always appreciated that, <laughs> that example. So he, he worked hard to slash the budget and uh, combined with pro-growth measures like, like cutting taxes and growing Indiana's economy in a significant way, and at the same time, cutting wasteful spending. And he, he single-handedly transformed with the help of the state legislature, a budget deficit, uh, and then grew a, a billion dollar or so budget uh, surplus in our state that is now our, the rainy day fund that we relied on uh, to help us get through the pandemic. So that, that meant making tough choices at times, Michael, when, when, um, when local governments would come to us and beg for more money, when we, we would get beat up um, here or there to spend, 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 to say, no, 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 it's not in the best interest of our kids, their future and Indiana's future to, to spend, we need to save and make fiscally responsible decisions. Well, not every state, what I've learned uh, now in Washington, DC is that Indiana is the envy of almost every other state 
in the country, certainly every other state in the Midwest, um, because that that's the fiscal fiscally responsible mindset that Mitch Daniels, Mike Pence, and now Eric Holcomb have maintained in leadership in our state. States like Illinois have had the opposite mindset. I mean, they've driven up budget uh, deficits for decades or more. I, I, another uh, another Mitch Daniels quote, if you will. Uh, Mitch Daniels, when he was governor, always said, uh, "Being next door to Illinois is living is like living next door to the Simpsons." They, they make it look pretty good, right? I mean, it, we we've had business after business move from Illinois to Indiana for a better tax environment. They recognize that families can do more with less in places like Indiana, better cost of living, just a better place to own, own and operate a business, less regulations, a better place to raise a family than in a state like Illinois. So um, keep, keep that in mind because now taxpayers in Indiana, because of Nancy Pelosi and this $1.9 trillion boondoggle, taxpayers in Indiana are bailing out the bad leadership in states like Illinois. I believe it's immoral. And uh, it's why I've, I've opposed a number of these measures that the Democrats have pushed to do that. I mean, for them, it's a bailout to Democrat-run states, to Democrat governors, um, a gift from Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi to their friends, uh, but rewarding bad leadership in those states. And it's something that I hope every voter in America will remember in 2022. Yeah. Congressman Jim Banks from the great state of Indiana, also the leader of the Republicans study committee, really the foremost uh, effort or entity in Washington that seeks to put forward conservative values in Congress and, and really for our whole nation. Uh, we're glad to have you. Thank you for what you're doing. And ladies and gentlemen who are watching, uh, if you want to make your voice heard on these issues, HR1, you heard about the threat to our republic in a literal sense it is, and to elections being run fairly and openly and to free speech, uh, go to I Volunteer. The link is there in the Facebook page. It takes about 50 seconds, less than a minute, to make your voice heard to your two senators and your House member. Let them know on this issue or the spending that's coming up. We know what's coming, sadly, from this Biden administration on another big spending bill. This time it's going to have tax increase proposals. Take a moment, get involved. It's a big moment for the country, and we need your help at Americans for Prosperity. Uh, Congressman, thank you for joining us. Michael Chartier, our Indiana State Director, thank you as well. Good afternoon, everyone.